Hey guys, Jules here. So we are in our first episode of this little mini series that I'm calling On My Bookshelf. When I went to choose books for this series, I basically made decisions based on two factors. One, I chose books with genres which challenged me or interested me. For example, later in our series, we'll be talking with a poet and a comic book author, a literary journal, you get the picture. But I also wanted books which spoke to the important cultural and societal movements of our day. And on the top of that list, (laughs) I wrote down two things. In one column, I wrote Charlottesville and racism, which we will get to at the end of this month, by the way. And in the other, I wrote one word, feminism. So you probably could imagine my excitement when literally the week I wrote these things down on paper, I saw that a certain woman had a brand new book coming out this month. I'm Claire Swinarski, and I am the host of the Catholic Feminist Podcast and the author of Girl Arise. That's right. The Catholic feminist herself is with us in our first installment to talk feminism, Catholic infighting, and the role of women in the church. I'm really excited about this one, you guys. This is the story of Girl Arise in the era of Me Too. begin today with something which recently happened in the news cycle which you might not have known about because of the just seemingly endless stream of news happening in our world today. People across the country are gearing up for this weekend's Women's March on Washington. It was founded two years ago, bringing together more than 400,000 protesters in Washington, D.C. alone. So if you all remember, about two years ago, just after President Trump's inauguration, hundreds of thousands of women from all over the country gathered together to protest. I guess they protested President Trump, his rhetoric, his election, I'm assuming some of his policies. And the most powerful image for America and for the world about this movement was the image of the United Front, right? Women from all backgrounds, ages, ethnicities coming together to support one another against various things, the misogyny, bigotry, all sorts of things that I'm reading on their website right now, actually. (laughs) But here's the thing. The image of the unified front was in many ways just an image because less than two years after that initial march where over one million women showed up together, this happened. Well, several organizations have dropped their partnership with the Women's March. They include the Democratic National Committee, the Southern Poverty Law Center, Emily's List, and the National Council of Jewish Women. Now, the sense of this unity that was created by the march in 2017 is now being tested as Jewish women and other diverse groups of people debate whether they should even come out for Saturday's march. That's right. The original organizers of the march have split. They're now in two separate groups. There's a lot going on with this, by the way. I really recommend reading about it. It's kind of interesting that there's accusations of anti-Semitism and racism and white privilege and all sorts of things. 
things. But what's most fascinating to me, perhaps, is that this isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened in American feminism. We have an entire history of American feminists not being able to agree. From the Prohibition era, to the rise of contraception, to the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, and even the feminist infighting of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandals in the 1990s. The feminist movement in America can't seem to get its act together (laughs) in presenting itself as a unified big tent movement. And I don't even think I need to remind our listeners that this inaugural march famously removed a pro-life women's group from its list of sponsors. So how did this happen? Why can't American feminists seem to present a unified message? And more importantly, what is a Catholic woman's role in all of this? So before we get to Claire, I think it's important to journey back. (laughs) because Claire's story and her overall mission is intricately woven with the history of feminism and the role of the church in our country. So listeners, come with me for a little while as we venture into a very, very brief (laughs) history of American feminism. So let's begin with the most natural place to start. 1848 and the Seneca Falls Convention. Now, organized by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Moss, and several prominent Quaker women, the Seneca Falls Convention represents the first organized movement of women coming together to demand basic rights. By the way, did you know Frederick Douglass was there and he was the only black American at this convention? I just thought that was interesting. (laughs) I did in my research. I thought that was kind of cool. Anyway, so the most important thing to come out of this initial gathering was what became known as the Declaration of Sentiments, a list of demands that women believed they were entitled to as American citizens and just as basic human beings. And from here, the American feminist movement is born. It began meeting annually during this time after 1848, took a little break during the Civil War, but then it experienced a huge surge in the strangest of places, the Prohibition Movement. The Prohibition Movement was largely, almost entirely actually, organized by Christian women's groups. And after experiencing the power of organized protest and civil disobedience in the pre-Prohibition era, women like Susan B. Anthony and others began organizing the official suffragette movement, which demanded a right to vote. And from there, classical feminism was born and took on many different forms, actually, demanding women have more prominent role in the workforce, demanding protections of women from abuse and neglect, higher pay, more influence in politics. You get the picture. But when we think of American feminism, this is the right place to begin. But the question, of course, becomes, when did things shift? Because most of us know now, feminism today seems to revolve primarily around the issue of reproductive rights, mainly abortion and unfettered access to contraception. So how did classical feminism, the feminism of people like Stanton and Anthony, get swept up in the abortion rights movement? Well, it's here where I think we need someone else to help tell our story. 
My name is Angela Franks. I am a theologian. I teach at St. John's Seminary, in particular in their programs for the laity. Dr. Franks has a wide range of academic interests, including theology of the body, history of eugenics, and humanae vitae. Now, according to Dr. Frank's research, to understand how feminism went off course, there are two simultaneous movements to understand, both around the same time period at the beginning of the 20th century. The rise of contraception acceptance in Protestant denominations, specifically in the 1930s, and the rise of eugenics. You know, eugenics was something, if you were educated, you were a eugenicist in the 1920s. I mean, just everybody was, you know, if you were a legislator, if you were a college president, a professor, I mean, everybody was a eugenicist in some form or another. And the reason everyone was a eugenicist stemmed from concerns of overpopulation. And these concerns really took shape in the early 20th century, thanks to a group known as the Neo-Malthusians. The name came from Thomas Malthus, who argued in the 18th century that population growth would always outstrip food supply. And the neo part of the neo-Malthusians, which you start to get by the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, the neo part was that Malthus advocated continence, or you would say sexual abstinence, as the solution to this problem. And the neo-Malthusians advocated contraception. Now, be careful here, listeners, because it wasn't some broad general statement about overpopulation which concerned people. There are deeply racist beliefs seeping into this, primarily the belief not just that the population was too high, but that certain types of people shouldn't be having children to begin with, mainly the poor, minorities, and immigrant populations. And these neo-Malthusian ideas slowly made its way across the pond from the UK to America and into the hands of one of America's most prominent figures. Somebody like Margaret Sanger, among others, she was so important in that she helped to give feminism a sort of enable it to to make a kind of theoretical U-turn because before her, people, feminists, you know, were concerned with really issues that we would call human rights issues, things like the right to vote, owning property, education, you know, all of those sorts of really human questions. They wanted women to be able to have equal access to those sorts of rights and opportunities. Right. The With Sanger, you see explicitly a refocus away from that stuff, which she considered to be superficial and not getting at the root of the problem. Because for Sanger, the root of the problem was female fertility. And stop. What oppressed women was their own bodies. Oh, my goodness. And so, yeah, which is, if you think about it, a kind of deeply anti-human stance to take that it's not all of that what we would say as Christians disordered desire that then translates into sinful social structures and that's it's not none of that stuff that is oppressing you it's your own body that's oppressing you Hmm. via its fertility through Sanger's influence and the influence of her newly found organization Planned Parenthood American feminism was slowly introduced to the idea that fertility Fertility was seen as an enemy to women, or at the very best, a hindrance. Women would never be successful, never have equal access to influence in politics and work unless their fertility was suppressed. She was really important in encouraging 
the feminist movement to make this transition from what we might call human rights to simply sexual expressionism. And so with Margaret Sanger, sexual expression and reproductive rights enter the feminist discussion. And here's the thing, listeners, perhaps the most important thing to understand before we begin our discussion with Claire. When Sanger and other American feminists did this, when they focused so much on sexual expression and reproductive rights, including abortion, they simultaneously chose to put other issues on the back burner. Money, lobbying, influence, most of the feminist energies became directed towards this issue, reproductive rights and eventually abortion. But even more than that, the way it hurts the feminist movement is that it sucks all the oxygen out of these more classic concerns that are really the sorts of things that when women talk about the sorts of things they're discontent about, it's these other things that come up. So, for example, the whole issue of women working. Right. um, That it is a perpetual in, in surveys that, that ask women about contentment and happiness, the issue of work is a perpetual difficulty in the sense that women feel as though they can't find work that they find fulfilling that also um, recognizes and acknowledges their desire to have a family. Hmm. Women constantly feel like they have to choose. Right. And what abortion and birth control has done in that arena is to basically tell women, well, we've given you the technological means to be just like a man. So what's the problem? Wow. And so the to find cultural and societal solutions to find new structures for things like work and schooling and so forth that respect women's um, fertility and the fact that women desire to have children and work with that instead of just simply trying to make women choose. Like, you know, we, we just still don't have structures that women are really completely happy with. In part, I think, because the feminist movement just hasn't cared enough. It's cared a lot more about abortion and birth control. And that's where all the money's gone, all the activism. And it, it leaves these really fundamental, classically feminist questions they're left behind. So what is a Catholic woman to do? In a culture where feminism is so intricately woven with the abortion industry, but also in a church culture where women's concerns can sometimes feel undervalued. Well, I think it's time to reintroduce someone. I'm Claire Swinarski, and I am the host of the Catholic Feminist Podcast and the author of Girl Arise. Claire and I, we just had a blast talking, by the way. Is this weird being on this end of the mic, by the way? It's super weird. I've I've been doing like a lot of interviews, and I always feel like I'm talking too much. And then they remind me, like, no, I'm interviewing you. And I'm like, I'm just so used to like asking questions and then like not talking. Claire grew up in Madison, Wisconsin one of four kids in a cradle Catholic family. But like most of us cradle Catholics growing up in the 90s, the church was simply something your parents made you do. Faith was limited to Sundays, and Jesus was just an abstract, impersonal figure. I grew up 
with an idea of who Jesus was, but I definitely didn't know him personally. And my family was Catholic. We went to mass most of the time, but I never really felt like I had a proper Catholic formation. And I'm not sure why that is. It might be because my catechesis was lacking or my parents were maybe at a different place in their faith life then than they were now. Growing up, I definitely never felt like I had this deep relationship with Jesus. And I really wasn't even sure if I believed in him as a person. I kind of went back and forth. Claire ended up attending college in her hometown at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it was there, after a particularly difficult patch in her life, that she came to learn about the great mystery of God's love and mercy. Out of the blue one day, I was like, I'm going to go to mass. And I never really went to mass in college. I went kind of once in a blue moon. So I went that Sunday and it just happened to be the Sunday where they announced a retreat they were doing. And I am not sure why on earth I signed up for a retreat where I knew no one going, but I did. And Claire's journey, like so many others, began the slow daily process of encountering the person of Jesus in her life. This daily process, this relational ministry is central to Claire and to her story. She started to meet others, especially women who taught her how to pray. And slowly, she began to fall in love with the church. Her faith became so central to who she was that she became a focused missionary after college. And she ministered to those who were closest to her heart. The questioners, the doubting young women. We'll get to this part of her story in a little bit later, by the way. But Claire's life proceeded as many of ours have. She got married, had babies, worked in an office job, which didn't quite seem to fit. (laughs) So she began to freelance. She loves her family and loved her work and was overall content with the life that she had started for herself and for her family. But then, as so many of us remember chaos began to circle all around her. I don't know if you know this, but um, we had a presidential election in 2016, and it was was a little heated. I don't know if you know that. Apocalyptic Um, nightmare. That was... (laughs) It was awful. It was was horrible. Everything just felt terrible, and I, I hate to sound dramatic, but I truly did not see a Catholic talking about the issues that I wanted discussed in the public sphere, specifically on a podcast, because I've always loved podcasts. And so Claire waited. She waited and she prayed and hoped that someone, some brave soul, (laughs) would dare venture into the space of women's issues, particularly as a Catholic feminist. But here's the thing. No one did. I still remember the day that my husband came home from work. I told him I wanted to start a podcast for Catholic women. And he's a software engineer. So he was like, oh, great. Like, I can help you with the website, whatever. Are you thinking in like a couple months you want to launch it? Or what are your thoughts? And I was like, oh, I built the website today. that part of the story by the way let me tell you something (laughs) when I started a podcast when I decided to start a podcast it took me I am not kidding two years (laughs) from the initial idea to finally launching a podcast so the fact that Claire did it in a matter of what weeks is just amazing and awesome frankly I love that (laughs) anyway as we all know by now Claire's podcast the Catholic Feminist launched on International Women's Day March 8th 2017. And Claire's podcast was a hit from the start. 
which, by the way, I think is really fascinating. Let's talk about this for a minute. Now, again, I've been doing this for a few months now, and trust me when I say it is hard to be that successful so quickly in this space. Now, of course, a bulk of the success, 99% of the success goes to Claire. She's incredibly thoughtful in how she chooses her guests. She's an awesome interviewer too, by the way. I can't stand when people interrupt their guests and Claire just doesn't do that, which I really appreciate. But we can't ignore the fact that part of Claire's success was because she tapped into something which the church needs to pay attention to. Thousands of women like Claire were longing for the same thing that she was, the intersection of feminism and Catholicism. Issues pertaining not just to what some commentators on the internet say are lady problems, but real human issues which need to be addressed. They longed for the mission of the Catholic feminist. So let's talk about the roots of that mission in Claire's life. I've always been a feminist my whole life. My mom was a really strong feminist. When I was in fifth grade, she took me and my sister on like a special road trip. I'll never forget it. We went to Seneca Falls, New York to see the (laughs) first women's rights convention was held. And we were always going on these fun trips to go see, you know, Elizabeth Blackwell's house or Susan B. Anthony's house. And she just really instilled the image of a strong woman in me. My mom worked my whole life. She was an elementary school teacher and she just always was super passionate. And so I grew up so all about the feminist life, equality of dignity for men and women. I was just all about it. When Claire fell in love with her faith, she realized she had to find a way to reconcile her feminist upbringing with her newfound love of the church. Could you be both a Catholic and a feminist. And then it was really apparent to me, specifically during my time as a missionary, I spent a year down in Louisiana, which should basically be another planet. I mean, they literally (laughs) have different language. And so I met a lot of people who were really against the phrase feminist. And some people were just against the word, but some people were really against the very ideas that I had held near and dear. And so I really saw that there was this sect of Catholics who did not truly understand the church's teaching on women because the church's teaching on women is very feminist. What does Claire mean by this, by the way? Well, she means that the church's teachings have always upheld the dignity of both men and women. Our church also honors and elevates one woman above everyone else but Jesus, by the way, the Blessed Mother, along with the numerous women saints, women doctors of the church, you get the picture. But of course, Claire kept encountering Catholics who, because of the ties with abortion and reproductive rights, couldn't quite seem to stomach the word feminist. And so when I hear people in the church saying that they aren't feminist, to me, it demonstrates either a difference in terms or a lack of understanding of church teaching. And so I really wanted to highlight the women who were doing amazing things. And that can mean really different things. That can either mean something like launching a nonprofit or being a speaker, or it could mean being an engineer who goes into a secular work environment every day and is surrounded by men and everyday sexism. Or it could mean a stay-at-home mom who finds joy in the struggles of being at home. Now, the tagline of Claire's podcast is a podcast for women who want to be inspired, informed, and intentional. 
I love this tagline, by the way. But what I love more is that it spoke to the very people Claire had started the podcast for. People like her. Women who wanted to talk about issues surrounding feminism and faith. And I knew when I called it the Catholic feminist that people were going to kind of stop and be like, oh, whoa, those two phrases don't usually go together because secular feminism often believe so many things that our church does not. But that was why I thought it was important to call it that because I want to draw a contrast and I want to highlight a truth about our church that I think is really beautiful. So a lot of times people will not like the title and then they'll learn what we're about and listen to some episodes and they'll be like, oh, okay, I actually am a Catholic feminist. Because Claire's right, of course. The two phrases are often seen in contrast with each other. Catholic feminists stood out because it's pretty rare that the two sides are even in discussion with each other. And Claire, thank goodness, has been trying to change that. I always look at Jesus as the truth. I mean, literally, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so there's things in the world that are true, and those are good and of God, because God is in all true things. And then there are things of the world that are not true, and we need to stand up and point those out. So I think there are plenty of areas where Catholic feminists and secular feminists actually really see eye to eye. You know, even if you talk to someone who says, I'm not a feminist, I hate feminism, blah, blah, blah. It is the rare person who would say that they don't think that men and women should get equal pay for equal work. Like no one is really against that. Okay. So like that is an issue where we want to stand alongside our secular feminists and say, you know, God created women with dignity. God desires justice. God desires that laborers are worth their wages. Because God desires all of these things, we can discern that he would desire equal pay. So I think looking for God in those true sentiments is so important. And in areas where we divide or disagree, Claire doesn't demonize the other side. She sees their beliefs in simple terms as just lacking basic truth, capital T, truth. (laughs) And this absence of truth isn't an excuse for her or frankly for anyone to turn their back on dialogue. Something that really bothers me is when it's like anything that a secular feminist says, the Catholics want to like disown because they're pro-choice. Right. So like if a celebrity says something that's against rape culture or sexual harassment, it sometimes can be the tendency of some Catholics to say, oh, well, what do they know? They're pro-choice, so they're not with us. But it's like just because you're pro-choice doesn't mean you can't add any value to society. <laughs> Uh, Over the past two years of the podcast, Claire has attempted to become a bridge between discussions about the church and feminist issues. And as we've mentioned how Catholics are often apprehensive, here's the thing. So are the secular feminists. (laughs) Several times over the years, Claire has been told by the feminist side of the argument that you can't be both. It is impossible to be both pro-life and a religious woman and a feminist. Sometimes just want women to understand, like I'm trying to have these conversations in a church where sometimes it can be hard to have them about things like immigration and women working. And sometimes these conversations are not popular among my people. And I'm kind of trying out here, trying to fight the feminist fight. And I feel like you don't want anything to do with me. Last year, Claire was approached by Ave Maria Press to write a book about her central mission with the Catholic Feminist. 
That book, Girl Arise, came out just last week and covers the topics that we've discussed today. It dives into Claire's conversion, it discusses different issues pertinent to feminism, including abortion, equal pay, and treatment of women. It talks about the biblical roots of the church's teaching on women. It dives into all of these topics, talks about Claire's own desires to build bridges and be a source of reconciliation. She even gives practical tips, by the way, for how women can be leaders in their faith communities. And what Claire does well in this book, and really in her podcast too, is attempt to break down the bizarre American political rhetoric which has seeped into the walls of our churches. And instead, she talks about the fullness of the problem. Take, for example, Claire's understanding of abortion policy. For instance, not to keep circling back to abortion, but that is an area where I see a need for an elevated conversation. Okay, we're against abortion. Why? Because abortion is a symptom of a larger issue. It's a symptom that living in our society as a mother is incredibly difficult and undervalued. Okay, so how do we as a church support women being mothers? How do we support women facing crisis pregnancies? How do we teach men to be fathers and not abandon their families? You know, how many times is abortion a result of that or of hookup culture? You know, like it's like looking at these bigger picture issues and elevating the conversation to be more focused on human dignity than politics. And if I had to sum up Claire's book, it would be this. Claire is trying to find the bridges in these conversations. She is a multifaceted person and wants to get to the heart of multifaceted problems. It doesn't mean all problems are the same, but it does mean that we should at least be talking about injustices of all kind in the world. So I'm reading along with Claire's book and I realize something that in a sense, I might not be exactly her target audience. I'm a little bit older, <laughs> just full disclosure. <laughs> now I'm on board with Claire and her mission uh, and I'm on board with the church. I have a master's degree in theology. I understand the complexities of the church teaching and how the church relates in the public sphere. But here's the thing. I also have a community which surrounds me and agrees with me and we can talk about these things. And as I read, I thought about the person who so desperately needed a voice like Claire's, maybe because they didn't have that. They didn't have that community. I imagine that person, probably a young woman who sat down with Claire's book and felt the validation that she needed. She wasn't crazy for thinking the things she thought. She wasn't crazy for having doubts, for not liking political labels. She wasn't crazy for wanting to be called a feminist. So after I read the book, I asked Claire, was I right? <laughs> Is this who you wrote the book for? I wrote this book for young Catholic women who want to see the church having large discussions about Jesus and justice. So those women are women who really speak to my heart because I see this deep yearning for truth that I think is so good. I think sometimes within the church, something that I have noticed and witnessed personally is that when someone asks a question, it kind of 
can be off-putting to the rest of the church. And we want to put them in this box of like non-believer or heathen or someone who doesn't swallow what we're trying to say as if it's a spoonful of sugar. (laughs) When really we should all be doing that. We should all be questioning things because we should all understand things. When you're just told something and you just swallow it and you accept it as truth and you don't kind of hold it up to the light and look at it from different angles and try to really grasp it, you're not going to fully understand it. You're going to be lukewarm. And like, we all know what Jesus says about lukewarm people, right? He spits them out. (laughs) Like we want to be on fire. We want to be hot. And here is the most important thing about Claire, her mission and her book. As I was talking to Claire, I found myself just incredibly humbled. There was a real, genuine, faithful love about Claire. Because for her, all of these discussions she's having with Catholic women, with secular feminists, and everything in between, it's ultimately about introducing people to Jesus. She meets people where they are at, but she doesn't necessarily want them to stay there. I think that we need to go back to constantly seeking the truth. And so to me, that looks a couple different ways. First of all, it looks like prayer. If we're not constantly connected with the Lord every day, how are we going to know what he's asking us to do? Like, how are we going to know his plan for us if we're not giving him a chance to tell us? So I think that carving out time to pray, you know, these days it's really hip and in to be like, thoughts and prayers, they're stupid, action. Prayer is action. Prayer Mm -hmm. is talking to the creator of the universe. That is action. Do not look (laughs) down on prayer. Now, don't use prayer as an excuse to not go out and do what God's telling you to do, but don't just go do things without asking God what he thinks first. So I think that carving out that time for prayer is really important. In our talk, there was one final thing I had to ask Claire. Claire went out of her way to talk about the church as being the true feminist movement, right? The church's teachings all recognize the inherent dignity and worth of each person, male and female. But here's the thing. The church hasn't always lived up to this. We have to be honest about that. We just do. So I asked Claire how she thinks young women should respond when they are encountered with a situation when they have felt undervalued, demeaned, and perhaps even ridiculed. Because here's the thing, this comes from all corners of our church, from the institutional hierarchy, to some of the writings of the saints, and even to that lay leader in a parish or college retreat. Who've been to women's talks where they've been told over and over and over again, guard your heart, be nice to the boys, guard your heart, or like, don't wear leggings. Those are scandalous. I mean, I'm I'm, this is not a straw man's argument. I have been to multiple talks where the point was leggings, where that was the point. When there are our sisters all over the world being sold into the sex trade, being killed for their gender, being raped and assaulted, and we're sitting here talking about leggings, it blows my mind. And I'm not saying that like modesty isn't an important topic and whatnot, but sometimes I think about it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, right. look, the leggings are on the top. Okay, we can't talk about leggings right now. We have right. very big issues. And maybe when we solve those, we'll get back to the leggings. But um, 
you know, it's, <laughs> or, it's, or we could just forget about the legs. Right, right. I'm wearing legs right now. Okay. Full disclosure. I was noted today. I did not put on real pants. Um, like it, it's for those women who have sat in those talks and just felt frustrated, but they know the truth of Jesus. They know the Eucharist. They know that the Catholic church holds the fullness of truth. And so they want to be a part of the change. They want to lead the church, not leave it like father, Mike says, you know, they see a need in their church. And instead of walking away and saying, screw this, I'm going to go do whatever. Instead, I'm going to go find God in nature or whatever. They're like, I'm going to stay in my church, but I'm going to be the leader for this cause for my sisters. The title comes from when Jesus says Talitha Kum to the little girl who they thought was dead, girl or eyes. Perfect. So is it a call to action, the book? Yes. It is telling women to rise up and to do the things that God has called them to do to change the world. That's going to look extremely different from woman to woman. There are plenty of mornings where I have spent hours just giving out fruit snacks and turning on Daniel Tiger and wiping the butts of my children and thinking like, I should move to Guatemala and be a missionary. That would really make a difference in the world. But some women are called to move to Guatemala and some women are called to hand out fruit snacks. And this is where the Lord has placed me. I'm so blessed that he gave me a platform to speak to other women and share their stories and change the world in that way. But I think we're all called to change the world in some way. And so this book is trying to call other women to that same action. In the past two years, issues concerning the role and treatment of women have steamrolled their way into the public consciousness, culminating perhaps in the movement which has come to be known as Me Too. And I think there are people in our society, perhaps even our church, 
who might have a tendency to scoff or mock or simply just disregard the movement as some arm of the abortion industry or other things that I've read about it on the internet. But here's the thing. Like Claire has done with her career, we are also called to find that common ground. Because beneath the surface of this movement are immensely important truths about women and our experiences. Here is Dr. Franks one more time to give us her take on the movement. With Me Too, the thing that I saw is that, first of all, for the first time in my lifetime that I could remember, it was socially acceptable for women to say that they were discontent with the sexual revolution on a wide scale. I just had never experienced that. You know, Christians would say they were discontent and people would ignore them. And, you know, you were supposed to love the sexual revolution, period, end of story. And so for the first time, women were allowed to say, this is horrible. Like, this is really awful. And let me detail why. And so in that, like that right there, I thought was extremely positive that they gave that space for women to do that. You know, women were seriously endangered by disordered sexual desire. And that's, let's, let's treat that as the, the serious thing that it is. So, so it's not, me too is not a 100% positive kind of thing, but um, I think that it does teach us, it does reveal some truths about reality that, that I think we need to hear. Claire's immense success from her podcast to her now already hit book, Girl Arise, is indicative of something which the church needs to pay attention to. Women want a spot at the table. We love our church and we love her teachings, but we want to be able to talk about the issues which matter to us from our lives at home to our lives in the public sphere. We want our opinions to be valued and respected both by the church and by the greater culture. And frankly, we just want to be able to reclaim the labels which so many in our faith communities have come to reject, including feminist. Thank you so much to Claire for letting me interview her about her book, Girl Arise, which is out now, by the way. You can buy it on Amazon, Ave Maria Press. I will have a link to it also on our website. I have always wanted to do an episode about feminism, and so hopefully I'll get to do more because this was really fun. Thank you so much to Claire for letting me do this, and thank you, thank you, thank you to Sarah Kroger for letting me use her amazing song, Overcome. I actually asked Sarah to use this song before I knew that Claire had just interviewed her, so it was pretty amazing. It was meant to be. I'm so grateful to Sarah. Please visit our website so you can visit her website and buy her new single, Overcome, and get information out about her new album. We will be back in about two weeks for our next book. I'm going to leave it a surprise for now, folks. God bless you, and we'll see you then.
绝。